Hi above the beautiful Buckhead District of Atlanta, this is your transgender scientist, Dana Bevan. In this episode, we'll examine the prenatal testosterone theory of being transgender. I'll talk about the dark corners where this theory comes from and the evidence. This theory is cited in lots of throwaway lines in scientific and public discourse, but what is the evidence? The prenatal testosterone theory of being transgender says that males in the womb who are exposed to lower levels of testosterone are more likely to become transgender women. Likewise, females in the womb who are exposed to higher testosterone concentrations are more likely to become transgender men. Our story starts in sunny California at the beginning of the last century. It was the center of the eugenics movement, which was growing in popularity. The so-called Pasadena Human Betterment Foundation and the Eugenics Society provided intellectual leadership centered in California. Eugenics sought to rid society of undesirable people by interfering in reproduction. One approach was to prevent those with so-called defective genes to pass these genes on. The movement spread from California to most of the United States and Europe. In the United States, 32 state mental hospitals decided which of their patients had defective genes and performed forced surgical or chemical castrations on both males and females. The labels were feeble-minded, epileptic, psychotic, and mentally disordered, including homosexuals and transgender people. Forced sterilization of African-American women came to be called the Mississippi appendectomy. The movement spread to nearly all the U.S. states, and by the time it ended, over 60,000 Americans had been castrated. Eugenics did not just involve mental hospitals. Several big philanthropic foundations helped it along. The Carnegie, Rockefeller, and Harriman Foundations encouraged eugenics at academic centers, for example. Yale, Harvard, and Princeton all participated. I'm sad to say that my graduate alma mater, Princeton, supported this movement, but happy that the Supreme Court of my home state of New Jersey declared a 1911 forced castration law unconstitutional. It had been signed by the governor of New Jersey, Woodrow Wilson. Yes, the Woodrow Wilson, who would later become president. So no forced castrations were performed in my state, at least under that law. The Carnegie Foundation started a center at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory on Long Island, which started to collect genetic trait and heredity information on all U.S. citizens. Although the center is no longer operating, it is still there today as a museum and monument to the popularity and insidiousness of eugenics. Although Cold Spring Harbor is world-renowned for its later contributions to genetics and biology, its beginnings were a little dark. The Harriman Foundation provided financial support for ridding New York City of immigrants. The immigrants became the victims of deportation, sterilization, and of accusations of crimes which they did not commit. The Rockefeller Foundation helped establish the eugenics program in Germany, which included funding a doctor by the name of Joseph Mengele. As part of his studies, he came to the U.S. to observe eugenics in action. This is the same Dr. Mengele who later was involved in heinous human experimentation in German concentration camps. While you may have heard of Mengele, you probably have never heard of the other Rockefeller-trained German eugenicists who became the leaders of eugenics for the Third Reich. 
Calls for racial purity and ultimate supremacy of the Caucasian race came from the prominent German biologist Ernst Haeckel. Plus knowledge of U.S. eugenics, the Nazis had all the intellectual support they needed for extermination of minority groups. After World War II, the influence of eugenics began to wane in the West, but there was still the cultural desire in the East to rid countries of undesirables, such as homosexuals and transgender people. This occurred particularly in areas of Europe controlled by the Soviet Union, including East Germany. East German endocrinologists thought they had found a humane solution with regard to ridding the society of homosexuals without castration or genetic manipulation. It was later extended to transgender people. They analyzed several research papers wherein the sexual behavior of newborn rats and guinea pigs had been modified by early administration of hormones. The developmental status of these newborns was believed to be equivalent to periods of prenatal development in humans. The idea put forward by the research was, researchers was that organization of sexual behavior is determined in early development by hormones acting on the brain, and then triggered later in life by the same hormones. This is called the org-act theory because it describes early organization with later activation. Endocrinologists at the Humboldt Institute in East Germany suggested that homosexuality and transgender people could be eradicated by manipulating fetal testosterone levels. If carrying a male fetus, pregnant women should get, receive testosterone injections. If carrying a female fetus, mothers should get testosterone blockers. They suggested that in the future, if the sex of the unborn child could be determined, then mothers should be injected to prevent homosexuality and being transgender. This would not eliminate defective genes, but it would provide a procedure for eliminating these undesirables that could be continued off into the future. I believe that the scientific evidence overwhelmingly refutes the prenatal testosterone theory of transgender. And here is a list. Number one, experiments on the sexual behavior of rats and guinea pigs hardly apply to the gender behavior of humans. Sex and gender are not the same thing. Human gender behavior is defined by culture and is much more complicated than any rodent behavior. Number two, it's beyond the state of the art to directly measure testosterone levels of developing fetuses, although it is cited in several research papers. The most commonly cited indicator of prenatal exposure to testosterone is finger length ratio. We discussed this in the last podcast and concluded that it was controlled by genetics, not by hormones. Other measures such as placental and umbilical cord testosterone levels are only accessible after birth. This is well after the critical period when sex hormones are supposed to influence the brain. The chemical chaos of birth also makes these observations questionable. There are, number three, there are males with a genetic anomaly called Kalman's disease who have very low testosterone levels throughout life. The prenatal theory would predict that these people would be transgender in large numbers. But in the literature, only one patient in the last 60 years has been reported to be transgender. There are currently approximately 150,000 males in the world with Kalman's, and none are known to be transgender. Number four, there are females with a genetic phenomenon called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, or CAH, who have very high levels of testosterone in their bodies from prenatal development until the problem is detected. It's usually not detected until teenagers when they find that they are not menstruating. 
The prenatal testosterone theory would predict that these females would be transgender in large numbers, having their brains bathed in testosterone from an early age. These females have been intensively studied, and out of the clinical reports of hundreds of patients, only a handful, when asked, have expressed interest in being transgender. Transgender behavior has not been reported, and none have been reported of started transsexual transition. It's often applied in public discourse and in a recent Katie Couric National Geographic special that females with CAH are transgender, but that is not the case. CAH females report they are quite content to be women and females. Because of all that testosterone, they do seem to engage in physical sports and activities, but that's to be expected from the impact of high testosterone on their body development. Present culture accepts these physical activities as appropriate for the feminine gender behavior category. Number five, the ORGAC theory has now been revised in recognition of the fact that genetics provides the primary guidance for development of brain mechanisms. In the womb, genetics involvement in brain development starts long before testosterone from te sex organs begins to circulate. Genetics appears to be involved in development of brain mechanisms that mediate both sex and gender behavior predisposition, but there's no evidence that they're the same genes or the same mechanisms. So the question you are undoubtedly asking during that scientific recitation is whether the East Germans took their own advice and started to inject pregnant mothers to avoid offspring who were transgender or homosexual. This would have been complicated by the fact that sex determination by amniocentesis or ultrasound was not available at the time? The answer is, we don't know. But about this time, the East Germans were following East German State Plan 14.25, which involved doping some 10,000 athletes with testosterone and anabolic steroids. The goal was to improve strength and gain unfair advantage in international athletic performance. The Stasi, the East German secret police, supervised the forced administration of these drugs without telling athletes what they were. Many athletes were harmed by these administrations. Is it possible that some female athletes were given testosterone during their pregnancies while carrying a child? Uh, we may never know. In later decades, we do know that clinicians have injected pregnant mothers of suspected CAH fetuses with chemicals that block tes testosterone secretion. Some of these treatments were done even before the development of a prenatal test for CAH. Instead, mothers were selected based on family CAH genetic history. The ethical implications of these treatments and investigations are still being debated, but it's clear that neither treated nor untreated CAH females are transgender. Back to the East Germans in the Humboldt Institute. Relieved of their Soviet overseas after German reunification in the 1990s, they came out in support of homosexual rights, but as far as I can tell, they have yet to come out in favor of transgender rights. Oh yes, and if you think the idea of eugenics is dead, consider that the University College of London recently admitted that eugenics advocacy conferences have been going on for several years on their campus, ostensibly without their knowledge. They are undoubtedly spurred on by progress in genetic technologies that would make it possible to give designer genes that could eliminate undesirable characteristics. We do need conferences to set ethics for use of these technologies, but not the ones going on in London. 
So the next time you read a line in a scientific journal or in a public article like, it is believed that prenatal sex hormones cause being transgender, instead of underlying the phrase, you should cross it out. Neither the prenatal estrogen theory or the prenatal testosterone theory are supported by the evidence. In the next podcast, we'll consider the third of the four factors in transgender causation, that of culture. Mm-hmm.